Welcome back to another episode of Real Conversations About Aging Parents. This is your hostess, Rebecca Tapia. Today, I'm going to share with you a cool experience I had this past weekend. And for a little bit of backstory, so many of you know, for a long time, I've been very interested in creating spaces for aging people, myself included. And a lot of my story started back in 2015 when we started to do the custom design for the home we live in now and decided to bring Nana to come live with us. And you'll hear from her in this podcast uh, in late November. So when I had the very special privilege of helping design a space for somebody that I deeply cared about, it brought out a different side of my creativity. It put a different tone on my clinical work, knowing about spaces and how spaces can help design in quality of life and function or the opposite spaces can remove quality of life and function. And something that my guest Esther said in her podcast was we we tend to design frailty, meaning that we don't design the homes and the spaces that we live in to help promote maximum function and quality of life in the long term. Anyway, so this is like an obsession of mine, a preoccupation And I've been trying to find different ways to apply it. And a couple of years ago, I reached out to someone I found on another podcast and started talking to them about my ideas, my perspective of how interior design is really part of medical care, of taking care of people, of somebody's overall holistic health. And they were very receptive and they happened to be putting together a project called Science and Design. So what Science and Design is aimed at doing is helping the industry of interior design and architecture to better understand and get the uh, academics in the world of science related to design in touch with the designers themselves. And if you know anything about science, a lot of times the scientists tend to silo themselves and write a bunch of things, but don't necessarily interact directly with the uh, intended users or with the people that they're studying. And so what Science and Design did was really cool. So this was headed up by Mike Peterson and Linda Kafka, now very uh, dear friends of mine, that went out to marry the two. So they went out and found the very best academics in the country and even the world on these topics, such as neuroaesthetics, which is how beauty influences the brain, biophilia, which is design based in nature, so natural shapes and natural colors, that kind of thing. And they they got these top minds and they got them together and started collating the information. And it finally culminated this past weekend in a symposium. So what where I went was High Point, North Carolina, which is a very, very small town, just about an hour, hour and a half um, outside of Charlotte. And this is where twice a year is the the large convergence of both interior designers and vendors. And so designers come to learn about the newest trends and see the vendors, and then they can come and buy things for their own services, or they could bring their clients money and buy things. It's really a very interesting and fascinating (laughs) type of conference. Actually, it's not really even a conference. I thought it was a conference. It's a very joyous fashion-based, design-based interaction of tens or hundreds of thousands of people over 12 million square feet of space for furniture and lighting and all sorts of fixtures and anywho. Okay. So this is the big thing that designers do twice a year. Everybody who's anybody goes to High Point Market. All the top minds are presenting at High Point Market and it's just, it's their thing. So 
I was invited to come and speak at the symposium, which was part of the High Point Market. And I was on two different panels. And both panels, I was paired up with two really accomplished designers. So that was very intimidating to be on panels with them. And in both cases, both panels were moderated by well-known people in the industry. And so that was kind of intimidating as well. But anyway, the, the point of me being there was to finally more formally express my sincere gratitude for beauty and design, because I think it does influence people's lives and their quality of life. But then also to bring uh, a different perspective and some gravity to how important I really think this is moving forward when we consider creating environments or spaces for people who are aging. And in this context of the podcast, our aging parents and understanding the influence of what the visual environment looks like and how that might impact somebody's quality of life. So anyway, I know that's a whole bunch of words. Long story short, I was part of these panels and talked a lot about the main thing they wanted to know was how does somebody design a space And how do we ask the right questions? And so how do we borrow from somebody in the medical field who has to ask questions all the time to try to get together a treatment plan or some intervention to improve quality of life? And so I borrowed heavily from my own experience and translated that, adapted that into things that designers could do that I felt would make a a big impact immediately as they're working with their clients. And so the, the point of this is that the science is there. It's been there for a long time that when you live in a beautiful environment, and I don't mean expensive, I just mean ability to see nature or to see things that are meaningful to you or things that move you, living in that environment is very good for the brain and very good for your health, even to the point of some studies showing that it will extend your life, that it will improve warranting against things like depression and anxiety. And if you think about it, I'm going to talk about five specific concepts that I think are applicable to aging in place when it comes to design. There's a lot more, and I plan to to end up publishing a lot more uh, around this topic. But anyway, sorry, I feel kind of scatterbrained. But maybe because it was such a crazy weekend (laughs) being with all these designers. And by the way, I figured out why they were so happy. It's because a lot of them are shopping with their clients' money instead of their own, in which case that would make me very happy as well. So in this podcast, I'm going to focus down on just five general areas I think are important or relevant when trying to design a space for an aging parent. And of course, we're all also aging, so it could be for yourself as well. But number one, borrowing again from the conference I went to and all the great uh, academics that were there, number one is the idea of beauty and what that person finds beautiful. There are some very basic things that most of us find beautiful, like pictures of nature, waterfalls, those types of things. And then for them specifically, maybe they have a certain type of art or certain photographs that they they are really attracted to. But making sure the spaces are designed in a way that promotes beauty. Is there a space to put up artwork? Or can there be an accent wall with a, a pretty color? Or can the window look out onto a pretty setting, maybe some greenery or something like that. And obviously all of us walk around thinking that spaces should be beautiful. But if you've ever visited somebody in a healthcare setting, like we haven't intersected yet with this concept, the healthcare settings are not beautiful. And they, in fact, they're almost like the antithesis of beautiful. So they have very neutral tones like browns and grays and whites. 
and there aren't a lot of color or even artwork or things like that, it can be very disorienting for the brain. And so when you have things that are beautiful in a room, almost like a focal point, think of it also as a compass for the room. And the brain knows where this visual stimulus is, it can orient towards that. When we put somebody in an institutionalized room with four white walls and a TV, right, which is mainly what we're doing for aging adults, um, then then they're going to lose that perspective. And we don't, it's such a natural inborn pathway to have a positive response to visual beauty. It has positive hormones released in the brain. The brain feels safer. The brain feels less stress and less depression when it's experiencing beautiful spaces. And you can think of this because I've been in spaces that should have been awesome, but they were so poorly designed and had such little beauty that I actually feel like I want to get away from those spaces. And so, and then if you see the horrific things we're seeing on the news these days of these war-torn areas, what strikes me when I see them, other than the abject human tragedy that's happening, is that these spaces that are in war-torn areas are all gray. It's all dust, it's all gray. There's no color, there's no beauty, there's no coherence. And that in itself is a trauma just to live somewhere that is devoid of beauty, somewhere that is, it's almost the, the space itself is part of the trauma because it doesn't give our brain something to hang on to, that this is beautiful, this is worth working towards, this is worth keeping, this is valuable, my space is valuable, so I'm valuable, those types of things. So when we think about um, a space for an aging adult, we get so lost in this idea that this is all about grab bars and widening doorways and zero entry showers, which yes, of course, all of those things are important. But the idea is purposefully and intentionally creating beauty in that space is part of the healing process. It's part of promoting longevity. It's part of promoting quality of life. And it's even positive for brain function. And so we, again, we're getting too tied up necessarily in these ADA type things, which I think are very important, but this is a whole person we're designing for. We're not just trying to design out the fall risk in the room, which of course that's core to aging in place. But the idea is you want to design in quality of life. And one of the first places you can do that is starting with beauty. And that's the visual experience of the room. Does the room look beautiful? Is there, does it look coherent? Does the room make sense? Or is it super disorganized and doesn't necessarily promote a feeling of calm or a feeling of experiencing beauty? So one of the few things you can do in your life that's pretty much free every single day is look at beautiful things wherever they are in your life. And those are positive ways to promote positive brain adaptations and focus. So so beauty is number one. The second, um, and these are all based in neurofunction and brain function. The second one is that the brain tends to function best and perceive possibilities when it has something called prospect and refuge. So this is a theory that back in the days that we were evolving, we were out on the savannas and the most safe that our brain ever felt was probably up in a tree protected, but looking out on the savanna. So I can tell if there's lions coming towards me or bears, but they're not going to be able to get me because I'm up in the tree. And so I have both the advantage of, of looking out and, fe and feeling safe at the same time. That'd be different if I was out in the open savanna 
and looking on the horizon because if I see something, now I have to run. And so it's very, very deep parts of the brain that, that appreciate the ability to look out from a safe space. And where you have this in interior design is where are the viewpoints from the windows in that room? And if possible, can you create spaces that help the brain take advantage of this prospect and refuge? And so is there, if you're moving somebody in, is there a room in the house that maybe looks out over the backyard or looks out over a green space or something like that? Are the windows such that it's easy to look out? I can't tell you how many times I've seen window treatments that people who are elderly can't operate. I mean, there's like 5,000 different things to pull and twist and all these types of things. And so they stop using them because they're simply too difficult to use or, or too difficult to, to turn back into the way that they want them. And so having some easy to use or intuitive type window coverings as part of this of encouraging that prospect and refuge. And it, and again, I'm talking about this in the context of aging parents, but this is, this is for everybody. Okay. So this is just human experience of space. So, so remember that. So that's the prospect and refuge and you can go throughout your home and think about where, how is your brain experiencing this? And if you want to get into a headspace where you're feeling really clear minded, that's why when you look on Instagram or wherever else, and they're showing these awesome videos of vacation spots, they're usually at a, on a balcony looking out over the ocean or say they're up on a second story in a mountainous region and they're looking out over the, the snowfall on the trees, something like that. Any type of, of space where you can look out at the beauty and ensure your own safety at the same time, you unlock just this different level in the brain and you can think more clearly, you can think more broadly that is almost like the, the most relaxed state the brain can be in. And if you think of how we do business these days in education, like we don't have any of that. So we put people in cubicles and small offices and crowded spaces. And so we're asking the brain to operate at really high levels, but at least design wise, we're not necessarily designing in the ability to do that. And you can think about it, the most powerful people in any corporation always have what? The corner office, because what do they have? Prospect and refuge. And so everybody else works on the interior of the building in these small, small cubicle spaces where they have no prospect, no refuge, and their back is to everybody else. And that's the least safe that the brain's going to feel. And the productivity will be the lowest versus somebody in a corner office. And so anyway, my little diatribe on prospect and refuge, but I think that's really important. And, and it can even be, like I said, it doesn't have to be a massive renovation. This is just being mindful if po where possible to have the ability to look out and feel safe as well. So number one was beauty. Number two was prospect and refuge. Number three, I'm going to talk uh, just a minute about color. We had, uh, as part of the symposium, I mentioned an excellent scholar that just talked about color and the role of color throughout humankind and what it symbolized and how it was used and misused. And, and anyway, the advent of even being able to create some of the paintings that you see and how revolutionary it was to have certain pigments available to painters to create images and, and what those colors came to mean. But stepping back from that, color is a very powerful tool that if you're not aware of its impact, you can sort of misuse by accident. You can think of it in terms of a spectrum. There are very stimulating colors like reds and oranges, and then they're very soothing colors, which would be like your greens and your blues. 
and then all, all colors all sorts of in the middle. And the idea isn't so much of picking which color is correct, it's which color matches the intent of the room. And so I, my example is I want to be very motivated in my laundry room because I don't really want to be there or do anything in there. And so having really bright uh, decorations or colors is very activating and can keep you uh, motivated and focused. But if I'm, say, in my bathroom, I want that to be very relaxing. So that's going to have your lighter colors, your pastel colors, those types of things. And I, I don't want to overcomplicate this, but the idea is matching the color with the intent of the room. And for people who are elderly, that becomes even more important because it adds more context. And so if um, if I'm in a room that is bright red or orange or yellow, and in the decorations that are in there, the, the wall colors, then my brain is subconsciously thinking, I need to be doing something, I need to be activating. And so if you're working with somebody who might have limited cognition, even using the colors as a subtle signal to the brain of what should be happening in the space can be very helpful. So in the bedroom area, you want it to, to signal to it that it needs to be relaxing and it needs to, to be calming down. And so finding those calming colors. Now, I know this sounds very obvious for most of you listening, and I'm sorry if, we're, if I'm talking too, uh, too beneath where most of you are already at with design, but the idea is here that that is part of how the space cares for that person. Is it, does it make sense? Is it signaling? Is it, is it telling the brain and helping the brain out just through the design itself? Another way color can be really helpful is through its own contrast. And we were um, actually joking. I was talking to another designer about some of the spaces we were looking at because the designers go through all their own portfolios and stuff. And, and many of the kitchens were solid white. So white flooring, white cabinets, white countertops, white everything. And that's definitely on trend for a lot of people. But the idea is that the brain has a hard time deciphering the function of these different spaces when there's no contrast. And it has difficulty determining, okay, this is the floor, you know, this is the surface, I'm supposed to be doing something here, if it gets washed out because it's all the same color. And so even creating a little bit of contrast between the color of the floor versus the color of the cabinets versus the color of the countertop can help the brain organize better. And even if you have somebody who doesn't have a mild cognitive impairment, maybe they're in their 40s, right? But just in that design, you the more contrast you can create, think of that as creating context for the brain. Oh, okay, so then I should place my tray here on top of this counter. This makes sense to me now. And one of the things that, that becomes more difficult as we age is our ability to even discern contrast. And so I just saw my optometrist a few months ago, and he asked me how I was doing, and I said, I keep having to turn up the contrast on my laptop. There must be something wrong with my laptop, right? And, and the answer is no, that as we age, one of the first things, one of the first sensory issues we start to have is difficulty in, in lower light contrast issues. And so um, intentionally designing, using color contrast as one of the tools to help, again, subtly nudge the brain, you know, do this here, but not here, I think is really important. In fact, one of the designers came and told me this incredible story of a client of theirs who the, their dad, their parents were living with them and their dad was having issues urinating in different parts of the house and how it was really difficult for the family. There was a lot of shame involved with that. There was a lot of blame, a lot of cleaning. 
And she went over to do a consultation and realized that the walls were white, the cabinets were white, and the toilet was white. And she walked in there with this gentleman and he said, I just, I can't see the toilet in here. And so he didn't have a signal to his brain that this was a specific color for a specific thing that you do here. And so they renovated the bathroom, ended up adding a black toilet, which I thought was interesting. And that this largely solved the problem for them. And so again, so you take what turned out to be a family stressor, an issue that was causing extra work, probably extra money, just to make sure everything was cleaned up and distress for the family. And there was a design solution for it, which I think is so, so much fun. That's one of my favorite things to do when, when you can help improve a family dynamic or lower the stress on a family or already difficult situation through some design hacks like that. And so knowing ahead of time that these monochromatic designs might look very good in a magazine and might work for, for younger people, but in moving forward, honestly, it's just not visually interesting for one. And then two can create other functional problems down the road. So number one was beauty. Number two was prospect and refuge. Number three is the use of color. And that can get uh, really fun and interesting. And that's a great tool. So we'll move on to number four. And then this was actually mentioned back in Esther's podcast. I can't remember which number that one was. But the idea that lighting is part of our neurological system. And that makes sense, right? Because when we go to bed, we have to close our eyelids. So like we were literally designed with little covers for our eyeballs and it has to cover our eyeballs. And then it's the covering of the eyeballs and the lowering of the sun that signals to our brain that it's time to go to sleep. So that's how the, the, the brain decides to go to sleep. And obviously before we had artificial light, it worked really well because the sun would go down, there'd be no light source and your brain would interpret this as time to go to bed and it would produce melatonin and help you go to bed. So now we have all sorts of artificial light and phones right in front of our face. And then we take melatonin tablets or something to, to help people go to sleep. And so it's kind of like we've gone backwards on this. But the idea is that light is not just a, a nice thing to have in a room. It is part of their neurological system. It's part of the way that the central nervous system is interacting with its environment. And so you want to think about it in a couple of ways. First and foremost is, is the light helping to promote a positive sleep-wake cycle? It, does it make sense? Does it make, is it coherent? Is there a way that can the lights be dimmed as it gets closer to bedtime? Um, can the lights be as safely as possible completely out to help signal to the brain it's time to go to bed? Um, and you'll see with patients that have uh, some of the more uh, distressing cognitive disorders, they'll go through something called sundowning, which is a disorientation and agitation that sets in right when the sun goes down. So right in that transitional period. And so when you look at lighting in a room, you want to think, is it promoting a circadian sleep-wake cycle? And there's all sorts of technology out now that you can install. It's not supremely expensive to help promote that. So different types, different colors of light and tones of light early in the morning. So again, more of those red and orange tones in the light. And then as you get closer to the evening, a softer tone of light. And so that's one way we could use light in a setting. The other way is to ensure that we have task specific lighting. So if somebody is going to be doing a dangerous task, such as cutting vegetables or cooking, you want to make sure that there's direct heavy light in that area so that they can see, again, we're talking about the poor contrast that can set in 
And so the idea is you also don't want to be having a knife and a vegetable in a poorly lit area. So the having making sure that the task lighting is as good as, as possible in those areas where those specific things are supposed to occur. The other way that lighting can really help in these settings is for fall prevention. And that comes with the installation of floor lighting uh, or, or ways the pathway lighting into the bathroom and then automatic lights in the bathroom when somebody enters. Uh, and that doesn't have to be bright light, doesn't need to be blasting anybody. But the idea would be that if we're sort of disoriented or tired and we decide not to turn the light on, then there could be a fall in the bathroom. And so that's another way in which light becomes important. And then just in general, having a, a way to change up the lighting so that it's most comfortable for that person. So if they're going to be reading that there's a movable source of light, not necessarily one that's just fixated, so they could adjust the the intensity of the light and the position of the light, I think is really important. And then last but not least, the ability to have natural light in a room. So we've already talked a little bit about windows, but to have windows with appropriate coverings and, and like when my grandmother's house, for instance, we're very blessed in my grandmother's apartment to be able to have two solar lights. And so those bring a natural filtered light that is very, uh, it's from the outside. So very much mimics, you know, sunrise and sunset. And that's a nice background lighting for her. And I, do, I think does help enhance the contrast that's in that room. And so lighting is definitely your friend. When, when houses come sort of, you know, out of the factory, if you will, once they're produced, the lighting is an expensive part of the process. And so they tend to skimp on the lighting and there's like one central light maybe attached to a fan in the middle of the room. But nowadays with the, the prices and technology, the way they are very affordable to help improve lighting in a space specifically task lighting and then that ambient lighting to promote the circadian sleep-wake cycles is, is very good. So just a quick recap. Um, number one, we talked about beauty. Number two, we talked about prospect and refuge. Number three, we talked about color. Number four, we talked about lighting. And number five, I'm just going to put in some potpourri topics here. Sorry, I didn't, I couldn't fit them all into any of the other areas, but I wanted to just go over a couple other things that came up this weekend that I think are fantastic things to think about. So one thing I was talking to the designers about from my perspective, and I mentioned this before on the podcast, is the ability to have a bidet in the bathroom. And I, I had this builder come up to me after my, my panel, and she just does specifically 55 and up communities. And she just started taking notes and asking me a ton of questions. And I said, every bathroom should have an outlet in there. And she said, well, I thought you could put bidets in that don't have, don't need electricity. And I said, you can but they're not that, they don't have that many features. It's just water. It's just the temperature of the water. And um, if you have electricity there, then you can have the bidets that can help uh, regulate the temperature of the water. They have a drying function. They have where you can adjust the angle of the water. And again, going back to the discussion about bidets, the whole idea here is if you ever find yourself unable to clean yourself after using the restroom, a bidet is brilliant. And this could be because you have a shoulder surgery or maybe you have a stroke or maybe you're just feeling really weak that day from having an illness or something. And so what bidets do even better than much better than toilet paper is clean your bottom and the, and your private parts and more way more thoroughly than you're ever going to get with a piece of toilet paper. And when you have this sort of water and air cleaning, it also helps reduce things like infections or skin breakdown, those types of things. And so 
I know bidets are not culturally accepted here in the United States that much, but they are in many, many other parts of the world. And when you don't put a $35 outlet there when they're building or renovating, then you lose that opportunity, at least an inexpensive opportunity to have the ability to put the bidet in there. So the first thing she said is, okay, there is an outlet going in every single community I'm building from here on out in the bathroom. So I thought that's so fun that somehow this conversation ends up that somebody five years from now will have a bidet and have their own privacy and their own dignity and their own independence because of this one conversation here in North Carolina. The other thing I talked about that it kind of goes back to number one is the use of a horizontal stripe in the shower. And what this is thought to do, uh, what it does neurologically is it provides a horizon. So think of the shower as having really light tile and then you have a, a one strip of dark tile, maybe about eye level, something like that. So not at the very top, not at the very bottom, but about eye level. So maybe like five to six feet. And what this does is, is it helps the brain write itself if it's starting to feel a little off balance or dizzy. And one of the main, the main place in the home where we have issues with dizziness and balance is in the shower. One, because you have prolonged standing. So you're standing there for a long time. So the blood is pooling in your legs. Two, it's really foggy in there, so you're maybe not seeing as well, right? And in three, when it's hot, you might be sweating and maybe feeling a little bit dizzy already. And then four, it's very slippery. And so it's just, of all the places in the house, that's like fall central, which is in the shower. And one of the things we could do to help promote safety in the shower is to have that black strip, not black necessarily, but a dark strip um, across about eye level. And, and what was so fun is she was like, all right, every shower I'm building from here on out will have that strip. And this is not necessarily um, an aesthetic issue because many of the most stylish showers will have contrast in the shower of some sort. And so you just want some sort of strip of contrast. Again, going against the idea of these monochromatic designs that the, is very disorienting for the brain, right? And nowhere in nature is this, this strict monochromatic um, existence except for like on rocks and mountains. Everything else has context and, and color and texture to it, but we keep in the modern style, which is in right now uh, in a lot of different areas, is keep putting these monolithic colorless areas that lose context for the brain. And the brain is craving context and perspective, and we're literally putting it in a hot box with a bunch of water, and it's all white everywhere. And that makes no sense to the brain. So again, kind of in this potpourri section here, is if you have the opportunity to do that, is to have that that darker colored or at least contrast colored strip at about the eye level. One other thing we talked about that I thought was important um, was just the flow of the room and making sure that it's that the room made sense to the brain. If you were to tell a story of how you got from point A to point B, or how you're going to accomplish this task, such as um, you know, uh, paying your bills or charging your phone. You want the visual environment to scream that that's what happens in that spot. And so what you want to do for everybody, not just aging people, right? Or aging parents is the more that you can add context and intention and directiveness to the brain, the less that we'll have to worry and think, well, is that what I'm supposed to do here? I'm not really sure. Well, I thought I was supposed to cut vegetables here, but there's a bunch of paints and artwork here. And so the more you can afford to create specific spaces for specific uses, the easier it will be for the brain to engage. And then if or when we do start to have some cognitive issues, 
it's pre-programmed into the brain that this is the area where we do this. So I'm going to go into a, a, a slight anatomy thing that I brought up as well that I thought was really helpful, which is talking about an organ deep in the brain called the hippocampus. And hippocampus in Greek actually means seahorse or sea monster. And the organ itself deep in the brain actually looks like a sea monster. You can Google it. It's really, really strange. And so when the Greeks were doing their uh, anatomical explorations and they found a the hippocampus, they called it the seahorse, right? And so anyway, the, what this organ uh, deep in the brain is responsible for doing is for remembering spatial orientation. And that means that it is hardwired in our brain, like what is safe and what is not safe. And so if I went to you and I said, I want you to think about your grandmother's house or your best friend's house when you were a child, and I want you to close your eyes and tell me how to get from the front door to the bathroom, you could probably tell me. You, you probably can't tell me the address of the home or maybe even your friend's parent's name, but if it was somewhere that you really, really enjoyed or really, really hated, had a strong emotional attachment to in either direction, then it's encoded very deep in your brain. And that's why when you go into a space that you haven't been in in a really long time, you intuitively know, you know, what's around, what, what should be around each corner or how it's even situated. So if I gave you a pencil and a paper and I, you know, we, we found whatever house was important to you. And I said, can you draw and sketch, you know, a, a general floor plan to it? You probably can. And that's because the brain is programmed to remember, like uber remember extremely positive and extremely negative experiences. And it downloads those and keeps them. And I think that's really important because when we're trying to create spaces for people, asking them about these things, what types of spaces have you felt safe in or unsafe in can be one of the most important questions to ask because it's already programmed in them and they can't deprogram that, right? And so if there was a specific color of a wall in a room where something bad happened or something scary happened, then you don't want that color anywhere in their current space. But you won't ever know this unless you ask about this sensitively as possible to help help understand, you know, what is in their hippocampus? What are some of those spatial orientations? And so when we know about this, though, we know that this is an important part of the brain that's, that's basically downloading all this information. The next idea is the more coherent and easy we can make that spatial orientation, the easy it will be for them to remember it. So we create these complex spaces that don't make any sense, that don't flow, that don't mimic anything that they've had before, then that can be very disorienting for the brain as well. And so having gone through those five things, I want to kind of summarize. In general, there are a lot of transitions that happen, and you'll hear this over and over in the podcast, when somebody can no longer be in their own home. So they move into an assisted living or a senior center type thing or a nursing home. And it's hard enough to do that. And it's difficult for the family. It's financially stressful. Um, It's usually not something that the person that they care about is wanting. But once we can get through that piece, or at least have that piece (laughs) set to the side for a moment, the more we can think about the space itself that they're moving into, what we can do within whatever we're handed for that space, caring about them, showing love for them, showing kindness to them, then maybe that's the only thing we can control in that moment. What does it look like? And in fact, when you hear people go and look at assisted livings or nursing homes, the first thing they're doing is walking around just to see what it looks like. Is it beautiful? 
is it coherent? Does it make sense? Does it look like it's a, does it look like it supports people? And, and I think that's really important. So, um, when things feel grossly out of control and you can't fix this, you can't fix that. And this person has to move, then if it's any solace whatsoever to rely on the few things that we can control at that moment about their environment to help promote their quality of life and their function. So Anyway, I know this was kind of off topic for the normal podcast. I just wanted to bring it to you because it was fresh on my mind. Um, I am very excited about working with interior designers. And I think I made a lot of great contacts this past weekend and continue to, um, and plan to continue working on that aspect as well um, as it relates to aging in place. I've got a lot of great, exciting podcasts coming up. Um, I'm really loving talking to you guys through the podcast and I appreciate the positive feedback. I am going to ask for some reviews if possible on the Apple podcast platform. The algorithm will prioritize my podcast, the more reviews that it has, and then more people can find it. So if you're enjoying the podcast and finding value, please, please, please head over there. Leave me a written review. That would be great. All right. Until next time, everybody have a wonderful week. Find beauty in your day-to-day life and I'll see you later. Hey everyone, it's Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to take just a moment to review the disclaimer. This podcast is for informational and occasional entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed here is formal medical, legal, or financial advice. By listening to the podcast, we are not creating a patient-doctor relationship between you and myself or any of the guests. Really, it's just me and a possible guest or two, sometimes three, sitting around talking about difficult topics related to aging parents. If you have or suspect that you might have a medical problem or condition, you should seek advice from a licensed medical professional. If you have any questions or concerns, please read the full disclaimer in the show notes or contact me directly. Thank you again for joining us today. I can't wait to see you next week. Have a good day.